few kingdom relationships, and it is a small world, just how, you know, these, these relationships intertwine, and you just never know. It's a small world, but it's good to be here this morning, and that worship was awesome. I could have just gone home now and be full, but I do have something I want to share with you. Uh, what time do you guys, we usually want, are we out by noon? 12.15, okay. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to really push through some material. And uh, I'm going to encourage you, I'm going to give you a, a 12, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you uh, some material here you guys can process through. Uh, you know, man, we've talked about a lot of things this weekend, and so I'm like, Lord, what do you want to speak on it? I, I spoke on something last weekend at our church, so you can get the elaborated form on our website, on our podcast, if you want to do that. Uh, but it's just, it's a really foundational message that I think is helpful for everyone. And uh, it's something I revisited last week with our church. I'm going to be te- teaching some more on it uh, in the coming weeks, but I just want to share it with you. And I, so what I want to talk about is the blood of Jesus, the value of the blood. You know, we use this terminology, I plead the blood, we enter by the blood, we use, you know, the, the blood as a, a weapon against the enemy. We talk like this, but often we don't understand how that works. And because we don't understand, we're not connecting the dots, we're not really able to leverage the blood the way we need to. You can put it this way, that man has two problems. He, he has one problem called guilt in two forms. Or you could say that man has a divine dilemma and a human dilemma. The divine dilemma is we have legal guilt. We are guilty before God of sin. And it alienated us from God. And the answer is the shed blood. But man also has psychological guilt. That's the human dilemma. And there are people that are right with God legally, but don't live in the good of that psychologically. Because they are forgiven, but they don't feel forgiven. And so there are people that have been reconciled to God through the blood of Christ, but they don't live in the good of that. They don't live in His presence. They live on the outside, always feeling like they have to get better and earn the right to enter. And if you look in the New Testament, I discovered this about two years ago. Now you might think, well, Pastor Dave, I've known that for years. I didn't. I learned this about two years ago, that there is a difference in the New Testament between the shed blood and the sprinkled blood. Same blood, different uses. That the shed blood is presented to God, but the sprinkled blood is to cleanse your conscience. The shed blood is for the legal dilemma, the, the legal guilt that alienates us from God. And the sprinkled blood is to cleanse our hearts of a guilty conscience so we can come boldly before the throne of grace. Then there is a third use of the blood of Jesus. And you could put it this way. There is uh, the blood of Jesus answers the demands of heaven for a perfect life. It answers the demands, the human dilemma, the human demand of a cleansed conscience. And it also answers hell's demand. And it's, it's the weapon we use against the enemy. We're all, we're all familiar with that verse, you know, they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, the word of their testimony, they love not the life unto the death. Well, the fact is, all three of those are used Satan word. That, the context of that is we're using the blood against the enemy, using our testimony against the enemy. Where you, we love not our life and that we leverage that against the enemy so he has nothing to stand on in our life. So how do we utilize the blood against the enemy? There's a logic to this that if we can connect the dots, we can begin to take advantage and really live in the good of that. And so 
There's three uses. There's the shed blood, the sprinkled blood, and the wielded blood, but they are progressive. If you don't understand why the blood is valuable to God in the shed blood, if you don't understand the value it is towards God, you won't be able to see the value of it in your own life. You're not going to be able to use it to cleanse your conscience, so it's progressive. And if you can't cleanse your conscience with the blood, you're a sitting duck for the accuser of the brethren that the blood will overcome if you know how to use it. Does that make sense? So there's a progression. So that's what we want to look at. So uh, Hebrews chapter 2. I, I love Hebrews chapter 2. If you look at verse, uh, verse 5, it says, For it is not to angels that God has subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. And then he, ca- he quotes Psalm chapter 8. The somewhere was Psalm 8. And he says, What is man that thou art mindful of him? The son of man you would visit him. You made him a little lower than the angels and put everything under his feet. So he quotes Psalm chapter 8. And then he says, yet at present we don't see everything subject to him. Why? Because of the fall. So if you look at at Hebrews chapter 2, it's really a helpful uh, overview of redemptive history. If you want to understand any subject scripturally, theologically, you've really got to look at it through numerous lenses. You can't just look at what, how the cross affected it. So you want to look at first, original design. What did God originally intend for that subject? How did sin affect that subject? And how did redemption affect that subject? And sometimes you can even look at it, what, the event of the cross and the process of the cross. And looking at it through that overview, then we can really understand a subject matter. Some people only study, they, they begin with the fall. And that will lead you to wrong conclusions. Some people only start with the cross and they don't understand original intention. And so we need to have this overview. God had original intention. God had a plan, a wonderful plan for your life. The devil had a very bad plan for your life. And that was the fall. God has a way to redeem that through the cross. So how do we cooperate with that? And so Hebrews chapter 2 really gives us that overview. And it's, it's a great passage for studying things like prayer, and and so forth, but especially for the blood. So it says, What is man that thou art mindful of him, the son of man that you would visit him? You made him a little lower than the angels and put everything under his feet. So in God's original design, God put everything under man's feet. He delegated authority to man. But then the writer of Hebrews, whoever wrote it, I kind of think it was Apollos, but that's my opinion. uh, So he says, what? uh, he said, Yet at present we don't see everything subject to him. Why? We have original design. The fall, man abdicated his role as ruler and gave that away by becoming a slave to sin. But it says, but we see Jesus. So now we have introduced creation, uh, the fall. Now we have the incarnation. Jesus stepped in and took on the role as the second Adam and became a little lower than the angels. Now crowned with glory and honor, it says, so that he might purchase redemption for all of us. What does all this have to do with the blood? Well, what we need to realize is that when God, when Jesus took on human flesh, he was picking up where the first Adam left off. So God had a plan for man, and Adam and Eve derailed that plan, and so Jesus came as, in Hebrews 2, there's different translations, they'll say it different ways. Some translations will say he is the captain of our salvation. And it says in this passage, it's fitting that the captain of our salvation should be made perfect through suffering. Why? Why would, why would it be fitting that he be made perfect through suffering? What he's implying is the reason it's fitting that Jesus is made perfect through suffering 
is because that's how the rest of us are going to be made perfect through suffering. I know that's not a hallelujah moment, but that's just, that's reality. Suffering, there's no pain, no gain. That's true in weightlifting and in Christianity. So it, we are made perfect through suffering, and Jesus was made perfect through suffering. Now, I want you to think about this. I'm going to tweak your theology a little bit here. Jesus was not born perfect. He was made perfect through the things he suffered. It says that he, he was going through the process of being made perfect. Now, that is not implying that Jesus was sinful. Oswald Chambers, J. Oswald, or yeah, Oswald Chambers, the one that up my utmost for his highest. You ever read any of his stuff? He's got some wonderful stuff on this whole subject matter. Uh, years ago, I read a quote by him. He said this. He said that Jesus was not born perfect. He was born innocent, and there's a difference. He said innocent is nothing to brag about. It's never been challenged. But perfection or purity has been confronted, challenged, and held to, its, it held to its morals and came out the other side. So in the New Testament, the word perfection literally means completion or maturity. So Jesus wasn't born perfect. He was born innocent and had to go through the same process Adam and Eve were intended to go through. Way back in the garden, Genesis 2.26 let us make man in our own image. In the image of God, he made him male and female, he created them. I would propose to you that that making was a process and that image was potential. What do I mean by that? That Adam and Eve were not finished product. That God put potential in them and what he was going to do is he was going to draw that potential out through testing and, and confronting their will and only through choice could they unfold that image, that character of God and grow into all that God intended for them to be. But we know Adam and Eve failed right up front, and they derailed the whole plan. So what did Jesus do? He took on human flesh and became the second Adam, is what the New Testament refers to him as. That's why in Hebrews chapter 2, when it says, it's fitting that he made the author or the captain of our salvation perfect through suffering. The NAS, I believe it is, calls him the pioneer of our salvation. I like that one in this context. Because what happened is Adam and Eve took out took this developmental plan that God had for us and derailed it, and Jesus cut through the thick underbrush of his moral dilemma and brought humanity back on track so that you and I could pick up and go, go on with God's plan. And so Jesus was not born perfect. That's why when Herod tried to kill him as a baby, it wouldn't have been good enough. He could not have purchased your salvation as the infant. We would, you know, if that were to happen, we'd have these little mangers and instead of cross necklaces, we'd have manger necklaces. It wouldn't work because he had to be made perfect. It wasn't good enough to, for him to merely give an innocent life. He had to have a, uh, theologically, I think you could make an argument for his innocence could have taken care of your past, but his perfection is what provides for your future, gives you the ability to live the life on an ongoing basis. And so he had to be made perfect. Philippians chapter 2 says that Jesus became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Hebrews 5 says he was made perfect. Once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation. So God had him on this plan. Jesus had to grow up 
and to develop his character, and he had to fulfill every desire that God had for man. When God said way back in Genesis chapter 2, let us make man in our own image, the word of the Lord will not return void. Jesus coming in, in human flesh was God stubbornly pursuing the fulfillment of that original plan. I will have a man in my own image. And so Jesus took on human flesh, and he was tempted in every way like as us, and yet was without sin. I remember years ago when I was working at Teen Challenge, I was talking to a young guy, and, and he said, he said, you know, this stuff about Jesus suffering, he suffered for three hours on a cross. I've suffered my whole life. Big deal, three hours on a cross. So I scooted my chair away, less lightning strike. And I said, you got to understand, Jesus suffered his whole life. He was familiar with suffering. He was denying himself his natural desires and inclinations for you and I. He was on a developmental plan. He was cooperating with the Father. This was, wasn't some momentary thing or just a few hours on the cross. He, he was a man acquainted with suffering. He was denying himself. And that was the way that God was developing him. And then once made perfect, once the crowning act of his perfection, the crowning act of his obedience, was he became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And when he's hanging there and he says, into your hands I commit my spirit, and hurdles himself into eternity, that was the final act of obedience. And therefore he was made perfect. So what does this have to do with the blood? Well, if we understand what Jesus was really doing, when, when Leviticus, and it's, it's quoted again in Hebrews, when it says, the life is in the blood, the life that is in Jesus' blood is not just an innocent life. It was a life that fulfilled every righteous requirement that God had for man. The reason Jesus' blood is valuable to the Father is not because he was Jesus, he was God's son. Your, your blood is valuable to the Father because you're his child but not in the same way that Jesus was. Why? Because Jesus' blood fulfilled every righteous requirement that God had for man. It's a completed life. It's an obedient life. It's a life that was perfected, and the one thing that God demands of man to come into his presence is perfection. The one thing that God says, I need from you to come into my presence is I need a comp completed life. And we know we don't have that in of ourselves, but we do have it in the bowl of blood. In Hebrews 9, it, it has this astounding statement that Jesus went into the holy of holies. And then it says, not, this, not the replica made by the Jewish people, given the blueprint to Moses and they made on earth. That's just a replica. The, re the real holy of holies, the throne room of God. And it says he approached the throne on the basis of his own righteous life. It's an amazing statement. The only human being in all of history, eternity, past, present, and future, that will ever approach God on the basis of his own righteousness, the one who earned the right to walk boldly in and ask for anything, is Jesus. He enters on the basis of his own righteous life. So when you and I begin to understand what's in the blood, and we understand why God values it, because God determined, I will have a man made in my image. And that making was a process that Jesus cooperated with, 
And he was obedient on, at every turn until finally he could present himself as the perfect specimen. He fulfilled every righteous requirement before God. And so therefore, he can come boldly before the throne of grace, but so can you and I. Now, a lot of believers live in condemnation, but condemnation can only come on the ground of self-effort. If you are not a legalist in any form or fashion, if you understand that you enter by the blood of the Lamb, you can't live under condemnation. But it's because we don't understand that that we are susceptible to condemnation. In fact, the people that are most susceptible to condemnation and living outside of God's presence are the most sincere Christians. They're sincere, but they have a misunderstanding of the gospel. If you have a misunderstanding of the gospel and you're not sincere, when you fail, it doesn't matter because you're not sincere anyways. If you are sincere but understand the gospel, you won't live under condemnation because you understand how to use the blood to approach the Father. But it's when you don't understand the gospel and you're sincere, those are the people who are most susceptible to condemnation. And the enemy will leverage your sincerity against you to beat you over the head. And I'm speaking from experience. When I got saved, I got saved in 1983. Uh, I, I was a homeless alcoholic, got converted in a borrowed bedroom. Uh, this lady and her, her unsaved husband, I used to smoke dope with her husband, but she was a believer. She'd come to my dad's church every now and then. And I remembered her, so I thought, I'm going to talk Jesus with her. And she'll let me stay here because these guys were trying to kill the guy whose car I was living. It's a long story. But anyway, so I thought, I'm going to talk Jesus. Well, she'd buy me Marlboro Reds, and I would chain smoke, and she would read the King James to me. And I thought, man, I'm really pulling one over on her. What I didn't know is that word was getting in me. Oh, man. God started to convict me. I just came under this intense conviction. And one night, I just thought, I'd, I'll reopen communication with Jesus. I'm not planning on getting saved. I'm not ready for all that stuff. I'm just going to talk to him. And I'll never forget it. I was in this little borrowed bedroom, and I just said his name. And his presence filled that room. And I began to weep and laugh and then speak in tongues. And then I stopped and said, I better say the sinner's prayer. I, gotta get my, I was raised a good church boy. I had to get my foot in the door. You know? But man, God, it was like I was a hungry man, and I didn't realize how hungry I was. I'd forgotten until I smelled someone's barbecue. That's what it felt like. When I felt him again, it's like, oh, I've so missed him. It just broke me in half, and I surrendered. But I had fallen into the lie the Galatians bought into. I thought I was saved by grace, but I had to work the rest out on my own. I remember I went into Teen Challenge, and we're mowing a lawn one day, and something made me mad, and under my breath, I said a curse word, and it shattered me, and I, I was so broken. I, I, this, this is actually what I thought. I thought, God, you gave me a brand new life. It was perfect, and I put a mark on it. I'll never be righteous again. I mean, that's a pretty twisted idea of what Christianity is. But I was serious. I was, I was sincere. I just didn't understand the gospel. And so I really struggled with this over the next probably five years. And it really came to head when I was in Bible school. Matter of fact, your pastor, Rich Green, uh, one night I'm laying on my, on my bedroom floor just crying out to God. And I said, God, I, I, I'm a fraud. I, I can't be in ministry. I, I, I don't pray enough. I don't fast enough. I don't 
If I wasn't doing wrong things, I wasn't doing enough right things. It was just I was trying to earn God's favor. And I was exhausted and I was fried to a crisp. And I was just laying there crying and I said, God, I can't do this anymore. I, 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 th- I guess I just had five years worth of Christianity in me. That's what I said. I thought, I would quit school, but my bills are paid here and I got a free room and board. I could still eat. But I got to figure out what I'm going to do. I, I'm, that would be fraudulent for me to go in the ministry. And I'm laying in the dark on my face and I heard an audible voice say, Dave, Romans 8. It was rich. He had snuck in through the, the suite, the other suite. And it was, I don't, he must have heard me praying because he said, Dave, Romans 8. And that set me on a journey of God teaching me about the blood of Jesus and it set me free. And I had to, I had to realize that I've got to base my walk with God on the blood not on my own righteousness. And I would train my mind when I would worship. I would, I would come before the Lord and I'd, I'd picture His throne room and I'd be on the outside wanting to get in. There'd be an angel, kind of like the bouncer, you know, you got an ID. And I'd say, I, I know the one requirement is a perfect life and I don't have it in of myself, but I've got this bowl of Jesus' blood. And I would picture the angel say, come on in. And I'd present it to the Father and He'd say, come on in. And I had to literally retrain my mind to base my righteousness on what Je- the finished work of Christ, on what Jesus did. Hebrews chapter 9 talks about cleansing our conscience, our hearts of a guilty conscience by the blood. It's reiterated in chapter 10. So how does this work? Because if you don't understand that the legal guilt of your life was settled, through the finished work of Christ, that Jesus paid the price and He offered the Father the one thing you need on your behalf, then you're never going to be able to cleanse your conscience. See, the word conscience, the word we use conscience, con, with, science, knowledge, with knowledge. You, your conscience dictates to you based on what you believe to be true. doesn't necessarily mean that you're right. It just means don't violate your conscience because that's a hard issue. Paul said, my conscience does not condemn me, but that doesn't mean I'm innocent. He's acknowledging that you can have a conscience that's been instructed incorrectly. Now, we still need to protect our conscience. Even if we're wrong about what is wrong, we need to guard our conscience, if that makes sense, because that's a hard attitude. But we also need to grow in our science so that we are instructed and we don't have a conscience the enemy can play with. So we need to be in the Word and re-instruct our conscience so we're basing what we believe upon the truth. Because the enemy is out to leverage those lies. If he can't get you to backslide, what he wants to do is keep you out of God's presence. If he can keep you from boldly approaching the throne of grace, from living in the presence of God by making you feel unworthy. You see, for me, for a long time, I, I had this penalty box theology. If I blew it, then I have to spend a couple days in the penalty box. And as long as there was a few days between me and what I did wrong, then I would feel like, okay, now I can go back. You know, that's, that's kind of in the past, and I've proven to God I'm sincere. Now I can go back into God's presence. A really twisted way of living my life. But it, what it does is undermines your ability to live an effective Christian life. We're to live in God's presence. I remember during that time, we had just, I had just started to work for Team Challenge, and I was going through something. I don't remember what it was. But we were in worship one night, and all of a sudden I saw, I didn't know it was a vision. I just knew I saw this picture in my mind. 
but uh, I wouldn't have called it a vision, but it was. Uh, and I was standing outside this massive room, and it, looked, it was like a gymnasium, the size of it. And I was looking through the door, and there was this, it seemed like a never-ending glass floor. And I knew in my spirit intuitively, it's the throne room. I want to go in. But then I felt like I'm not worthy. And the Lord directed my eyes down, and on the threshold of the door, it was just blood. And the Lord told me, you can only enter by the blood. God will not give you rest based on your own righteousness. He loves you too much. If you think you're going to earn your way in, He will not allow you to find rest in that, because to do so would be to endorse a deception. And anytime we rest on our own righteousness, we are susceptible to the enemy. We are susceptible to be self-righteous and look down on others, or more likely, to live under condemnation and feel like we've got to live outside the throne room. And so we need to learn how to wield the blood. We need to understand that it satisfies the Father. God in His brilliance provided an appeasement for His own demand in the blood that Jesus grew and he developed, and he fulfilled every righteous requirement that God had for man, and he presented it to the Father on our behalf. He was not only the the lamb that was slain to pour out his own blood, he was the high priest that would present his own blood as the lamb. And when he did, it satisfied the Father. And when we understand that, then we need to retrain our mind. The Bible talks about the shedding of blood, but it also speaks of the sprinkling of blood. In the New Testament, it uses this phraseology in Hebrews 9 and 10, that we sprinkle our hearts from a guilty conscience. This is not a New Testament concept, because in the Old Covenant, there was sprinkled blood. You remember that Moses sanctified the law through the sprinkling of blood, the utensils in the temple. He would would take hyssop, like it was some, some weeds, and they'd wrap them together and dip it in blood and flick it. And uh, it would sprinkle blood, and in that way it says they would sanctify the law. He'd sanctify the people, sanctify the utensils. So when the Bible speaks of the sprinkling of blood, it's talking about sanctification, not justification. Sanctification is simply to set aside and make holy, to consecrate it, say this is for holy things. Theologically, we talk like this. I'm justified, I'm made right before God, just as if I'd never sinned, people will say. I'm justified, I'm made legally right, but I'm also sanctified. Justification is an event, sanctification is both the process and an event. We're in the process of God sanctifying us so that my legal position, I'm justified, I'm made right with God, my, my living condition begins to live up to my legal position so that I'm becoming sanctified. But you cannot grow as a believer if you're not secure in the finished work of Christ. Because you'll just spin your wheels in your own self-righteousness, trying to be made righteous before God, trying to be acceptable before God. The enemy will play with your conscience and condemn you. So we have this weird phrase that Jesus shares in the Sermon on the Mount. He says this, Agree with thine adversary when you're on the way to the judge. What in the world does that mean? What he's insinuating is every time someone takes you to court, you're guilty. Agree with thine adversary on the way to the judge, lest you be found guilty is what he's implying. What does he mean? What he's saying is your adversary, the devil, 
is the accuser of the brethren. And when you are on your way to the judge, the Bible says that he condemns us before the throne of God day and night. How would the enemy have access to the throne? It's not the enemy having access to the throne, it's you having access. And as you are on your way to see the judge, as you're going to go before the throne to worship the Lord, the enemy will try to condemn you before the throne to keep you from engaging with God. And the enemy keeps a lot of people stuck in an immature state and not enabled, they're not enabled to enjoy the presence of the Lord because every time they try to draw near, the enemy condemns them and they live in the outer court feeling like they're not worthy. So what did Jesus tell us to do? Agree with your adversary. When you're on the way to the judge and the enemy starts saying, man, you ain't worthy, what do you do? You say, exactly, I agree with you. I'm not worthy. I don't have it in my own righteousness. Good thing, because I'm coming in on Jesus' righteousness. And in so doing, you pull the rug out from underneath the enemy. Because if you're trusting in your own righteousness, then you are a sitting duck for the the enemy. He is going to be able to point something out and you'll spin your wheels trying to defend yourself. When what we need to do is agree with him. Hey, I know, I'm not righteous in and of myself. Never will be, never was. Thank you for reminding me of that, enemy. Because I, I approach by the blood of the Lamb, the finished work of Christ. And it's in that way that we use the blood, Satan word. We agree with him and strip him of his power by not arguing about our own righteousness. That's a non-issue. The righteousness that I enter into is Christ's righteousness. And there's nothing that can change that. So when I change the basis of the argument, I've stripped him of his power to condemn my conscience. And so it's very important that we learn to use the blood of Jesus as a weapon. As we present it to the Father as the shed blood, we sprinkle our conscience as the sprinkled blood. We remove that guilty conscience. By reminding ourselves, retraining our mind, I don't approach him based on my own righteousness. Now, when I was a young believer, I was afraid, man, oh, that's just going to give people a license to sin. You know what? People who aren't sincere, they're already finding a license to sin. And the people who are sincere, they're not looking for a license to sin. They want free. And so we've got to be careful that we... You know, I don't want to hold back on the truth because I think someone will misuse it. The truth will set you free. And an unrighteous heart's going to find a way to twist the truth, and a righteous heart won't. It's between them and the Lord. But we need to understand that the truth is that Jesus paid the price for us to get in. That he fulfilled every righteous requirement that God had for man. Years ago, when I first went on staff at Teen Challenge, we had this, this uh, AG pastor who had resigned his church and come to work for us, and he was an interesting character. And uh, we'd have these, these devotion times with the staff. Well, the students were reading their Bible. We'd be down having a little Bible study early in the morning, and we're drinking our coffee. And, and this one pastor, he says, he starts talking about the, uh, the Ninevites and how the Ninevites were just these brutal people. They would skin people alive and And he said what they used to do is they would do this strange thing. They would get captives uh, in front of a field, and they'd say, if you can make it across this field before we catch you, you're a free man. Well, they're thinking about the stories they've heard of skinned alive and stuff. They're thinking, I'm going for it. Well, what they didn't know is they'd already made bets on how far that guy could run without his head. 
So they'd let him get out there a little ways, and they'd ride up on a horse with a big old saber. They'd snip his head off, and his body would, and then his body would fall, and they'd laugh, and whoever got closest would make the money. So he tells us this as we're drinking our coffee, you know, over breakfast, and I was looking at him like you are, like, why did you tell us this grotesque story? And so there was no application. You know, he just told us this. So we went up to worship, and I'm worshiping the Lord, and the Lord spoke to me very clearly. He said, Dave, that's exactly what the enemy does with you. He cuts you off from the head and makes bets on how long you'll last. Condemnation is the way the enemy removes us from the head. Jesus is our source. But if he can convince you, even in that an unconscious way, that I can't really walk with him because I'm just not up to par. I, I know my own heart and all this other stuff. You see, there's a lot of believers that think introspection is a spiritual discipline they need to partake of. I used to really, I, I used to believe that, okay, you read the Word, you pray, you fast, and then get involved in daily introspection and just look for sin in your heart. I want to tell you, if you do that, you'll find it. It was a miserable way to live. Corey Tenboom had this wonderful statement. She said, look around you, be, depressed, be, be, at, be stressed, I think it was. Look within, be depressed. <laughs> look to Christ, be at rest. And when we don't understand the power of the blood, we have a tendency to look within to find righteousness. And what we need to do, Hebrews 12 says, looking away unto Jesus. Away from what? Away from you. <laughs> Get your eyes off you and get them on him. I remember the first time I ever drove a car, a buddy of mine had a, a Comet, Mercury Comet. Those don't seem, but he had a 302, and it was a good little car. And uh, he said, you want to drive it? I'm like 14. I scared the spit out of both of us. Because what I did is I looked just right over the hood, and I was all over the road. He was screaming, pull it over, pull it over. He thought he was gonna, I was going to kill us. And uh, what I realized is that if you want to learn to drive a car, you got to look down the road. You don't look at the end of your hood because you can't steer that way. The Christian life is the same way. If you want to learn to walk with God, you don't stare inside of you looking for righteousness. You look that, get looking away unto Jesus. Get your eyes down the road. Get them on Jesus. And so we need to be skilled in understanding the value of the blood and applying it to our own hearts, realizing we offer it to the Father. And you might have to do what I did. I, I, I went through these mental exercises. God, I know that I'm in and of myself. I don't have anything to give you. But I have this blood. This life in this blood is a life that fulfilled every righteous requirement you ever made of man. I was listening to C.S. Lewis the other day, and he was saying, how only Jesus really knew temptation. He said, those who dive into a life of sin have lived way too sheltered a life to understand temptation. I thought that was an interesting way to put it. They've lived way too sheltered a life because they gave in too easily. They never went the whole way and resisted temptation to really understand it. Only Jesus understands temptation. We think, oh, he doesn't understand. He was perfect. He's the only one who does. We bailed, every one of us, too early to really understand it. He rode that thing to the end and broke that thing. 
And in that, he was able to offer the Father a perfect life. And that's what we have. We have a perfect life to offer God in the blood of Jesus. And it removes any opportunity for the enemy to condemn us because we're not arguing on that ground anymore. It's not about me, what I did or didn't do. It's about what he did. And rather than that becoming a license to sin to people, I have found that it brings stability in their life. That's when real growth begins to happen, when they know they're accepted in the beloved. And the irony is, that is the very ground out of which real fruit and maturity begins to grow. And the life they've been wanting to express and manifest actually begins to happen when they know they're accepted in the beloved. All right? Let me pray for you. Father, Lord, I thank you, God, for your word this morning. Lord, I thank you for this house. Lord, what you're doing here. Lord, we thank you for visiting us this morning in worship. And Father, I ask that you would give us a greater revelation of what the blood has accomplished. Lord, a greater revelation of what you've done for us and in us. And Lord, I ask that you would help us to take full advantage that we would live in your presence. We would live in the throne room. Lord, there would be that unbroken communion. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.